Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the roadmap to authoritarianism we are currently following, including the detailed and multifaceted roadmap to a coup that was practiced leading up to January 6th and is being refined in preparation for the 2024 election. Clips today are from The Mehdi Hassan Show, The Tom Hartman Program, Democracy Now!, and The Chauncey DeVega Show, with additional members-only clips from The Bradcast and The Politics of Everything. You worked for a time in Hungary, I believe. Orban's government was also a major case study in your book on fascism. And this morning you tweeted, quote, It's traitorous to wish upon the United States what Orban has done to Hungary. It's that simple. Now, I can imagine Tucker Carlson tilting his head and giving you his patented confused look. He would say, I'm an American patriot. Why is he wrong? And why is he looking to Hungary? It's anti-freedom. If there's one thing we should agree on left and right, it's that the United States, its core value, its core ideal is freedom. And Orban is anti-freedom. He's closed down the media. It's all Fox News all the time there. All the Hungarian language stations are Fox News. Everyone has to be afraid of the courts fining them. Uh, There's no business freedom. Uh, so uh, if, if one of Orban's cronies or friends wants your business, then the courts can simply levy fines against you. Uh, that kind of environment is bad for every kind of freedom that is shared across from libertarians in America to uh, to liberals and progressives. Economic freedom, uh, freedom for sexual minorities, for uh, our LGBTQ citizens, uh, fellow citizens, uh, all of that is under dire threat or, in fact, ended there. Uh, you know, so you can vote in gerrymandered rigged in, ger- in gerrymandered districts. Uh, but everyone just gets the same propaganda so, beamed. Yeah. You talk about voting in gerrymandered districts. Ruth, let me bring you in. Today in your newsletter, Lucid, you wrote that Victor Orban excels at electoral autocracy. What does that mean? Why is it different from other forms of authoritarianism? What makes it dangerous for America in 2021? So Orban is the poster child for 21st century brand of authoritarianism where he calls it illiberal democracy. And the democracy helps him to keep his EU funding and, and you know, the, the veneer of freedom. But uh, what, what it means is that you, you, don't, uh, you don't do uh, mass, you know, imprisonments, at least in his thing. You, um, you have elections, but as Jason said, they uh, all have to go in your favor and you keep a tiny pocket of opposition. So the conference, so Tucker is there, Carlson, to speak at a conference uh, at, uh, as part of a, that's funded by the Orban government. And there they have some critics uh, of Orban to keep, uh, when you have Westerners around, you keep the veneer of freedom up. And so he likes to say that he's yes. not a dictator, although his uh, nickname is the dictator. Uh, and that he is not a dictator because it's illiberal democracy. Yes, and he's been embraced not just by the American right, but by the British right and various quote-unquote mainstream right-wing parties uh, across Europe and the West. Uh, Jason, Orban has been known for championing the idea of the Great Replacement, a white supremacist conspiracy theory that says brown immigrants will outbreed white people, will breed uh, white Europeans out of existence, which is... 
interesting and offensive, but interesting and offensive because just a few weeks ago, Tucker Carlson said this live on air. Have a listen. Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's, that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Jason, the great replacement theory, to be clear, is what inspired the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre. It's anti-Semitic, it's Islamophobic, it's white supremacist, and the most influential conservative journalist in America believes in it, is normalizing it. What does that say about modern American conservatism? Well, this is fascist ideology. It's Anders Breivik, who self-identified as a fascist, a Norwegian mass murderer. It's the New Zealand murderer who had the same views. Uh, great replacement theory was the basis of the French fascist Guillaume uh, Fay's views. Uh, this is uh, European fascism, uh, and it it's um, it has deep American roots as well. The Europeans borrowed it from our 1920s immigration policy. So we're seeing an we're seeing again the fascist what what Mussolini helped develop the fascist international a uh, uh, fascist. All over the world, uh, demanding pure ethnic homelands, and you can see Carlson uh, normalizing that. He's been normalizing it for years now. It's not just this year in 2019. Uh, he also praised Orban for similar nativist sentiments. We're seeing this kind of uh, fascist international, these kinds of ultranationalist ethnic movements in India, Israel. Uh, all over the world, really, right now. And Orban is very much the mastermind, because, or, or, or at least laid out the playbook, because he's doing it in a nonviolent way, for the most part. He's laying, he's targeting sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, raising panic about immigration, uh, claiming that he's a defender of Western civilization, a white, white Christian nationalism. Hungary is the standard bearer for white Christian nationalism. And he's using the courts uh, to, to, uh, to, to enforce and 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 create this autocracy and driving out universities, targeting uh, intellectuals for uh, you know so, code Jews. Jason, I'm glad you mentioned India in your list of the countries and the quote unquote fascist international because it's a reminder that the nationalism we're dealing with is not just white nationalism. Authoritarian nationalism comes in different guises and colors. And Ruth, I just want to mention on the subject of nationalism, which I know you're an expert on. Isn't it weird that a lot of these nationalists aren't actually pro their own country? Tucker Carlson himself famously said this a couple of years ago. Have a listen. Because, and I'm serious. Because, like, why do I I'll tell you why? And why shouldn't I root for Russia, because, which I am? Tucker later said he was joking about rooting for Russia, but it gets at a deeper truth. Just in the past two weeks, we've had American conservatives openly rooting against U.S. gymnasts, against U.S. women's soccer players at the Olympics, as well as ridiculing Capitol Police who were hurt in the insurrection. American nationalists don't seem to actually like America. Well, there's two Americas. There's the America of the included, and everyone else should be locked up right, in Trump's formulation. And fascism always had this dual nature. It was hyper uh, xenophobic and, you know, my way or the highway, but it was also internationalist. And Orban's very significant, and it's very serious that Tucker's been his propagandist, 
because Orban has invested a lot in being a mentor of far-right um, politicians like Austrian Chancellor Kurz and Matteo Salvini, the, the Racist League in Italy. And there's a lot of activity in trying to uh, create this kind of neo-fascist far-right culture, and he's in the center of it. And so it's very significant that Tucker Carlson chose to devote a whole week of programming to Hungary, a, a country that most Fox viewers don't think about at all, probably. But he's sending a message, and it reminds us that there's no, we're not just living through a design to take down American democracy from within, but to take America out of the realm of democracy globally and insert it into this kind of new fascist international. Let's just jump into this. What you know? What we're learning as a result of this January sixth committee and the work that they're doing about actually what happened. First of all, uh, we've got this PowerPoint presentation. You know how to commit treason, how to overthrow a country, how to how to stage a coup. Another member of Congress, by the way, this this morning, uh, he kind of stumbled around it, but he was saying something. There's an old saying about coups and uh, if, uh, an unsuccessful coup. And what he was trying to say was. What do they call an unsuccessful coup? Practice. That was what he was trying to say. I was listening to it going, yeah. But anyhow, there's this 38-page PowerPoint out there that came out, uh, came out of the committee this, this week, I believe, or maybe late last week, as a result of, um, in fact, it was late last week, as a result of Mark Meadows turning over a bunch of, uh, some 8,000 documents to the January 6th Treason Committee. And it... It is being characterized, and, and Judd Legum did a really great job of this over at Popular.info this morning. It's being characterized by multiple news sources, you know, on mainstream uh, corporate media, as wild and crazy. I mean, literally using those words. Uh, extreme. Um, uh, doubting whether it was even seriously considered. Well, here are the, the uh, five bullet points that were at the top of this, of this uh, uh, PowerPoint. Number one, brief senators and congressmen on foreign interference. Number two, declare national security emergency. Number three, uh, foreign influence and control of electronic voting systems. Number four, declare electronic voting in all states invalid. And number five, legal and genuine paper ballots are constitutional remedy delegated to Congress. In other words, throw the election to the House of Representatives and let the Republicans choose Trump as the president. Let's just go through those five things. So the first point was brief senators and congressmen on foreign interference. That actually happened. Congressman Waldron told the Washington Post that he briefed Ron Johnson, Senator, you know, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin and Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina and other members of Congress who he refused to identify on President Trump's belief that foreign governments had meddled in our elections. Isn't this ironic? In 2020, he's saying this after what happened in 2016. Anyhow, the foreign governments had meddled in our election, and therefore uh, the Biden victory should be considered illegitimate. So that actually happened, the first thing in the PowerPoint presentation. They actually did the briefing. The second point in the PowerPoint presentation, the, the, the Mark Meadows treason PowerPoint, declare national security emergency. Well, Trump never actually pulled the 
plug or the switch on a national security emergency? He really didn't have an opportunity to. The time to do that would have been if Mike Pence stood up and said, I am rejecting the Electoral College ballots from Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin. You know, if he, if he just listed a half, a half a dozen states, the, the so-called swing states, and Georgia, and said, uh, I'm rejecting these ballots because of voter fraud, and I am going to throw the election into the House of Representatives where there are 30 congressional delegations controlled by Republicans out of, out of the 50, and uh, surprise, surprise, the election would have been given to Trump. Which is, as I've been pointing out since I published a piece about this in March a year ago, almost two years ago, in March of 2020, I laid out, this is exactly what happened in, not exactly, very close to what happened in 1876 in that Tilden Hayes election, where Tilden got the majority of the popular vote, and Tilden got the majority of the Electoral College vote, but because there were four states who submitted dueling slates of electors, they, they, selected, they submitted electors for both Tilden and Hayes, because they were messing with the election. These were states that were controlled, in the, the three southern states were still controlled by Confederates, by and large. Uh, the Union Army was there, but they were unhappy about it. And the fourth state was Oregon, which was controlled by the Ku Klux Klan which was sympathetic to the Confederacy, so we say. And, you know, as I point out, this is... So that would have been the point. When Mike Pence gets up there and says, I'm throwing this to the House of Representatives, that would have been the point at which the president would have declared a national emergency and mobilized the National Guard all across the United States and said, okay, if people pour out into the streets, we're going to start shooting them. Now, he clearly was setting this up. Keep in mind, this is point number two on the PowerPoint presentation. He said, this is, uh, you know, this, this is his January 6th speech. We won. We won in a landslide. That was a landslide. They say it's not American to challenge an election. This is the most corrupt election in history, maybe in the world. In fact, it's so egregious, it's so bad that a lot of people don't even believe it. It's so crazy they don't believe it. This is not just a matter of domestic politics. This is a matter of, of national security, said Trump. He's tweaking this. He's getting it ready, right? He's laying the groundwork. He had similarly called on the governor of Georgia in a tweet saying, why won't Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia, the hapless governor of Georgia, use his emergency powers, which can be easily done to overrule his obstinate secretary of state, blah de blah Use your emergency powers. Declare a state of emergency. That was number two on the PowerPoint presentation. He was clearly getting that ready. Number three on the PowerPoint presentation, foreign influence and control of electronic voting systems. On November 29th, 2020, on Fox Business, Trump said, quote, votes recorded on Dominion voting machines are counted in foreign countries. He repeated that same claim, Judd Legum writes over at Popular.info, on December 2nd, 2020. On December 22nd, Trump promoted a tweet on his uh, Twitter feed encouraging Pence to reject the electors certified by the Electoral College because of China, Russia, and Iran. So it's all right there, right? This is, this is point number three. Point number four on the PowerPoint. Declare electronic voting in all states invalid, genuine, and legal paper ballots. In a speech to our troops, for God's sake, on November 26, 2020, Thanksgiving, Donald Trump said to the troops, quote, those machines are fixed. They're rigged. You can press Trump and the vote goes to Biden. 
All they have to do is play with a chip, and it's shown all the time. All you have to do is play with a chip, and they played with a chip, especially in Wayne County and Detroit. In Philadelphia, you take a... So he's following the PowerPoint to a T here, perfectly. On December 2nd, 2020, he said, its name is Dominion with a turn of a dial. With a change of a chip, you can press a button for Trump and the vote goes to Biden. That was in a national speech. And then, of course, the other key slide in the PowerPoint presentation was options for January 6th. Vice President Pence seats Republican electors over the objections of Democrats in the states where the fraud occurred. Number one. Number two, Vice President Pence rejects the electors from states where fraud occurred, causing the election to be decided by remaining electoral votes. And number three, Vice President Pence delays the decision in order to allow for a vetting and subsequent counting of all the legal paper ballots. This is where Pence blew it up. And Trump knew this was coming and he was trying to stop it. This is what he said in his January 6th speech. Again, perfectly following the script of the PowerPoint, the treason PowerPoint, how to do a coup presentation that Mark Meadows turned over to Congress. This is from January 6th Trump's speech. Quote, because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. All he has to do, this is the, from the number one, or certainly one of the top constitutional lawyers in our country. He has the absolute right to do it. I just spoke to Mike. I said, Mike, that doesn't take courage. What takes courage is to do nothing. That takes courage. In other words, to refuse to count the ballots, the Electoral College ballots. And then Trump goes on to say, and then we're stuck with a president who lost the election by a lot. We have to live for that with that for four more years. We're just not going to let that happen. So we're, we're finding sort of what's happened in the White House. This is the big thing that they want Meadows to test. So what, was the, what was Trump doing? What was Trump saying for this three, three plus hours that the, that the Capitol was under assault? Trump was following this PowerPoint to a T. So what else was going on at that time? Well, this report that just came out of the January 6th committee, uh, this came out last uh, I believe it was Saturday or Sunday, um, says, quote, Mr. Meadows reportedly spoke with Kashep Patel. This is Kash Patel, who was then the chief of staff to former acting secretary of defense, Christopher Miller, quote, nonstop, end quote, throughout the day of January 6th. And among other things, Mr. Meadow, Meadows apparently knows if and when Mr. Trump was engaged in discussions regarding the National Guard's response to the Capitol riot. Now, this is the, you know, the first part of this is how, how Trump tried to gin up and, and freak out his, his followers so that they would go try to hang Mike Pence and, and assassinate Nancy Pelosi and, and steal the election. And then he would declare a state of emergency. So we've got all that. But what was the Pentagon doing at this time? Well, it, it, this is the, the chief of staff to the secretary of defense. So the secretary of defense runs the Pentagon. The chief of staff is, is his gatekeeper. And he was talking to, to Mark Meadows, the gatekeeper for Donald Trump, continuously through January 6th. Cash Patel was the gatekeeper for Chris Miller, the Secretary of Defense. Chris Miller, who on January 4th wrote a letter to the D.C. National Guard saying that without my subsequent personal authorization, the D.C. National Guard is not authorized to be issued weapons, ammunition, bayonets, helmets, or ballistic protection equipment, is not authorized to interact physically with protesters, is not authorized to employ any riot control agents, in other words, no tear gas, is not authorized to share equipment with law enforcement agencies, in other words, the Capitol Police, is not authorized to use intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets, 
is not authorized to employ helicopters or other air assets, is not authorized to conduct searches, seizures, arrests, or other similar direct law enforcement activity, and is not authorized to seek support from any non-D.C. National Guard units in the country. This is, you'll recall, the governor of Maryland was desperately trying to get the Maryland National Guard to the Capitol. They were only five miles away. And the Defense Department said no. Attention, everyone. I'm going to be trying something brand new this coming week on Monday, December 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern, which, to clarify, is a real day on the calendar. Previously, I said this was happening on a mismatched day and date that won't exist in the year 2021. So to be clear, it'll be on Monday, December 20th, which does exist, or will exist, barring some pretty extreme, unforeseen circumstances. Anyway, I'm holding an Ask Me Anything event at 8 p.m. Eastern on Monday the 20th on a new social audio app called Wisdom. It'll be like tuning into a live radio show with the option to join me on air by simply tapping a button in the app. So here's what you need to do to get ready. You'll need the app, and you'll need to be able to find me in the app. So do both by going to bestofleft.com slash wisdom on your smartphone there. You'll find a link to the app and my profile. You'll get all set up with the app. You can add me, turn on notifications to be alerted for when I go live, which again will be on Monday evening, December 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern. And that link again is bestofleft.com slash wisdom. I'll talk to you then. Well, the House voted Tuesday to hold former President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in criminal contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Meadows is now the first former Congress member ever held in criminal contempt by Congress, and the first held in contempt since 1832 when former Congressman Sam Houston was held in contempt for beating a colleague with a cane. The vote came after the committee released a second batch of text messages from people begging Meadows to convince Trump to stop the deadly attack. This is Democratic Congressmember Jamie Raskin reading text messages sent to Meadows' phone by Republicans on January 6th. A whole set of messages that were discovered uh, in asking questions to Mr. Meadows, including Republican lawmakers uh, and others sending frantic messages saying, we are under siege up here at the Capitol. They have breached the Capitol. Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on our doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? There's an armed standoff at the House chamber door. We are all helpless. The text messages to Meadows are part of evidence he turned over to the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Tuesday's vote came after the seven Democrats and two Republican committee members voted unanimously to seek contempt charges against Meadows. This is the vice chair of the committee, Republican Liz Cheney, reading private text messages sent to Meadows' personal cell phone by Fox News hosts on January 6th. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, 
Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, he's got to condemn this ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Those were text messages sent to Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, by Fox News hosts on January 6th. This was the response Monday on Fox News from Sean Hannity. The hyperpartisan, predetermined outcome anti-Trump January 6th committee just voted 9-0 to zero to hold Mark Meadows in contempt for, com for refusing to comply with their orders. Sean Hannity also had Mark Meadows back as a guest on his show to discuss the vote to hold him in contempt, but Hannity did not bring up the text message he sent Meadows during the Capitol riots. This comes as the January 6th committee has also voted to cite former White House adviser Stephen Bannon and ex-Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark for contempt of Congress after they refused to testify after receiving a subpoena. For more, we're joined by Jose Palieri. He is political investigations reporter at the Daily Beast. He's been following all of this very closely. One of his latest pieces is headlined, Mark Meadows' personal cell is becoming a personal hell. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Jose. So let's talk about the significance of this moment. This is the first time in U.S. history a Congress member has been held in criminal contempt, um, and only the second time uh, in, in, what, almost 200 years been held in contempt. Um, talk about these thousands of pages that he himself gave to the committee, or his lawyers did, based on—we don't even know his official phone, uh, his White House phone, but this was his personal cell phone—thousands uh, of pages, even though he is refusing to cooperate. Well, good morning, Amy. I, I've got to say, this is also the first time in history that a former member of Congress has become a chief of staff who tried to help a president stage a coup. And so what we're seeing here is absolutely new ground, but it's par for the course. So Mark Meadows and his situation is quickly worsening. And to understand it, we've got to, we've got to realize this is the problem that a man creates by himself by only going halfway. He received a subpoena from the committee to turn over documents and to show up for a deposition. And just recently did we discover that this entire time that the committee has been saying that they've been engaging with him, what's actually been going on behind the scenes is that they've just been delaying, uh, not the committee, Mark Meadows and his legal team. So for the past two months, they, they fought off showing up for, for the deposition. They fought off any document, uh, you know, uh, turning over any documents. It wasn't until really the end of November, basically, where they started turning over reams of data. And when they did, what's curious here is that it didn't come from the kind of stuff that you'd expect to be at the National Archives, like the things that would be on his official phone or his official computer. What he was turning over was stuff from two Gmail accounts and his personal cell phone. Now, this is where it gets really curious, because first off, you're not supposed to have official work on your personal electronics. He would know that this is one of the top Republicans who went after Hillary Clinton for her emails and her private server. And so he knew that from the beginning. But in turning over this stuff over to the committee, he was also trapping himself, essentially. One, he was trying to claim executive privilege on some of them, thereby admitting that essentially it shouldn't be in his possession now. And two, the stuff he was turning over hinted at what could be 
in the other material that he's not turning over. Like you said, the, these text messages between him and Fox News hosts and the text messages that he got from Donald Trump Jr. clearly show that he was in the know on January 6th in the run up to and after on this plot to stop uh, the certification of election results from 2020. But the trap that's really going to get him here is the following. It's, it's, it's three parts. One, if these are official texts, they shouldn't be on his personal cell phone. Uh, two, if they are official communications for the executive branch, then it sh- that, that phone should not be reimbursed by donors for his congressional campaign, which is something we discovered. And uh, and the third point is, if this phone is being reimbursed by his congressional campaign, given that he's no longer a congressman, they shouldn't be used in, in a personal capacity. And so he's absolutely trapped here. Um, one of the things that that I've spoken to about with um, with a former archivist uh, for the United States is that the stuff he's got on his personal devices needed to have been turned over to the National Archives on his way out the door. The fact that he didn't do that could also potentially land him problems by being in violation of the Presidential Records Act. And so really what we've got here is Mark Meadows, for reasons that are yet to be determined, essentially making himself a martyr for the former president and just just attracting all this trouble on himself where inevitably what's going to happen is if the Justice Department comes after him, he's facing jail time or huge fines. And this is going to be a problem for him going forward because this is not escapable. All of this hinges on the idea about whether or not a former president can claim executive privilege. And that's something we can talk about, too, because the Trump case right now that clearly is headed to the Supreme Court is going to essentially determine the outcome for Mark Meadows, uh, Steve Bannon, as you mentioned, and also Jeffrey Clark, that official at the Department of Justice who since left, but while he was there, tried to play a central role in essentially turning over the election 2020. And, and Jose, I wanted to follow up on uh, on that uh, that latter portion of your remarks there in terms of this issue of uh, the executive privilege eventually go- issue going to the Supreme Court. Isn't the effort of uh, of Meadows and uh, and the Trump uh, followers to drag this out to run out the clock uh, past the November elections when hopefully they can regain control from their perspective of Congress and short circuit this entire investigation? Well, Juan, that's certainly the position of the Department of Justice under the Biden administration. I mean, they've said in court papers that this is absolutely a delay tactic. I mean, the committee also is accusing this of being uh, such. But um, while that does appear to be the case, there also seems to be something else at play here. Um, Reporting that I did last week reflects that Steve Bannon's legal strategy appears not just to be uh, a manner of delaying this, uh, hoping that maybe if they stretch this out until late next year that we've got an election and then things get sort of fuzzy, but also that if there's a case against Bannon, Bannon's legal team seems to think that they can then use that as a way to reach into the Department of Justice, reach into the White House and try to seek documents that would purportedly show that this is a political prosecution. And so this perfectly well fits Bannon's strategy, right? We know him as this right wing provocateur who is, frankly, really intelligent and smart at playing games with with journalists, but also with messaging. 
with public messaging. And so uh, he seems to be trying to turn the tables here and say, well, forget the committee's work for a second. What did the Biden administration do to me? And in doing so, uh, we can see how uh, three different characters here, four essentially, actually, if you consider Steve Bannon, Jeff Clark of the DOJ, um, Mark Meadows, and then Trump himself, are trying to essentially not just block the committee's work, but turn it upside down. All these cases, though, it has to be said, all of these cases and any effort to block the committee's work claiming executive privilege, it all hinges on Trump's legal challenge, which deserves a close look because everyone I've spoken to, every legal scholar, everyone who's who's really knowledgeable about the Constitution and is currently teaching at a law school has told me that there is no way that a former president can claim executive privilege that overrides the current president. Um, deciding to release those records to Congress. That said, we are also dealing with the Supreme Court that has been packed by that very former president. And so it has yet to be determined what exactly is going to come out of this. But at the very least, like you said, Juan, there's going to be delays. And the problem with delays are at least twofold. One, we can run into the problem where if this stretches on until late next year, then Maybe if it goes beyond the election, then there won't be a Democrat-led committee. Maybe it'll be Republican-led, and we all know what's going to happen there. It's going to just fizzle and disappear. On the other hand, though, the delay also buys time for people to uh, delete information, um, to coordinate responses, um, to essentially uh, drag this out so that the evidence is not as fresh. And that could also be problematic because in this case, time is absolutely of the essence. doesn't happen by accident. We have to renew it with each generation. And this is an urgent matter. Yes. Yes. A thousand times. Yes. That was President Joe Biden sounding the alarm at the White House today about global democracy at risk. And not a moment too soon, because you know what they say about political activism. Think global, act local. In my view, this is the defining challenge of our time. Democracy government of the people, by the people, for the people, can at times be fragile, but it also is inherently resilient, is capable of self-correction, and is capable of self-improvement. I hope DC's Politics and Prose Bookstore has a good section on democracy self-improvement, because the president needs to get down the ASAP and start browsing the book stacks. I mean, we keep warning that for Donald Trump, the January 6th attack on the Capitol was practice. Another assault on American democracy is underway right now. Top aides and allies to Trump continue to fight the investigation into the events that led to the attack. 19 states have enacted new laws this year that will make it harder to vote. 19. And the Republican effort to undermine voting rights isn't anywhere near over yet. There's also blatant gerrymandering in the wake of the 2020 census that will all but ensure a Republican victory in the House that is not representative of the will of the people. And don't get me started on the Senate. It's madness over there. So please, please, Mr. President, tell us what you're planning to do about it. We're all ears. My administration is going to keep fighting to pass two critical pieces of legislation that will shore up the very foundation of American democracy. The sacred right of every person to make their voice heard through free, fair and secure elections. I'm sorry, what was that? You're going to keep fighting? 
Is this president laboring under the misapprehension that what his administration has done so far counts as fighting, that it's even sufficient? As I've already reported on this show this week, because the president is correct that there isn't a more urgent issue facing the nation, but we are almost a year into his first term in office and not a single piece of voting rights legislation has been passed. Not a single one. The For the People Act, the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Act, all blocked by Republicans in the Senate, all by using a filibuster that plenty of Senate Democrats still support. How can the president of these less than United States speechify to other world leaders about backsliding democracies going unchecked? A list that the U.S. is on for the very first time, by the way, backsliding democracies. How can he do that and not seem to ramp up the campaign of what he's ready to do here at home to save democracy? Faith in ourselves and, our, and in our democracies and in each other. That's what this summit is about. I'm so looking forward to a productive session and discussions that we'll have, a, we'll have over the next two days. I'm looking forward to the connections we'll build to support our work moving forward. So let's get to work. Come on, Joe. Summits are not the answer. They are window dressing, same as the gingerbread house in the state dining room and the more than three dozen Christmas trees deployed throughout the White House right now. Look, who does a recent American citizen have to call to actually get something done to save U.S. democracy? Santa Claus? Joining me now is Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale and the author of How Fascism Works. Jason, thanks for coming back on the show tonight. Joe Biden called this summit. He sounded the alarm. But let's start by asking a very blunt question. Is the United States really in a place to be lecturing other countries about democracy right now? Well, we're all hypocrites because we all, uh, in, in, a, in a system of injustice, all of us uh, benefit from undemocratic institutions, private universities, uh, private media. So there's hypocrisy here when the United States is under really an existential threat, not just from the electoral laws, but the attacks on our education system, which will result in less informed voters uh, and the protest laws. 45 states have considered 230 bills regulating protest. Uh, 36 of them have been en enacted. Uh, these are bills that you have to think of in tandem with the attack on the electoral system because they're preparing us for the protests that would greet the stealing of an election. So you have this very open anti-democratic movement happening, funded also by the, the oil companies. Many of these anti-protest uh, uh, bills uh, restrict protests and illegalize protests near pipelines. So it's all happening at once. This structure of big oil uh, companies, support uh, many different business interests that are threatened by democracy, whose work is against the public good, uh, and yet pushing this yet, along, along with this movement. And yet the president doesn't seem to be doing much about it. Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin notes that Joe Biden today said failure on voting rights is not an option, but then he avoided any remarks on the filibuster. How can Biden say that he's doing anything in regards to voting rights and preserving democracy if he continually refuses to engage in the debate over the filibuster? Uh, he, he must. He simply must. But uh, one wonders what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, for instance, Senator Manchin. Uh, I mean, I think that the Republicans have kind of left him alone. If there were any sign at all that that Senator Manchin would support these voting rights bills, I assume they would target him. Uh, so I think something is going on there. 
you can see this systematic attack happening. It's You can't just isolate one part. It's so massive. The attack on the education system so that when there are protests, Americans won't understand their cause and will we'll call for ever more violent police reaction. Uh, the attack the attack on, on protests, uh, the gerrymandering, all of this. And we're a very young democracy anyway. Uh, so, I mean, we've only became arguably a uh, somewhat more complete democracy in the 1960s. So we're a very young democracy and a fragile democracy. And what you're seeing uh, is that fragility uh, being severely tested. When we look at American democracy, some of its many flaws predate Trump. It's very easy to say it's about Trump and the Republicans and what state parties are doing. But a lot of the flaws, they are baked into the system, to the Constitution, to the way we do things for decades. Things like the Electoral College or a anti-majoritarian Senate or the fact that politicians can draw their own districts and blatantly gerrymander. I mean, Biden's sitting with a bunch of Western democracies. In no other Western democracy do I know of uh, politicians being able to draw their own boundaries in the way that they do here in the United States. There are broader institutional problems with American democracy, are there not? We have we have system. We're nowhere near a democracy because what democracy would have one party win the popular vote in seven out of eight presidential elections and lose most of those elections? So uh, so we're not a democracy. The Senate empowers uh, states with uh, with very few residents. Uh, so and and the Supreme Court uh, has been acting undemocratically. Now, one thing one has to realize is if you want to topple a democracy, you take over the courts. It's the first thing you do. And so we have a court takeover. The results of the court takeover we've been seeing for many years when the Voting Rights Act, key provisions of the Voting Voting Rights Act were struck down, uh, and a number of other uh, anti-democratic measures. We see in real time why the courts are so important. You target democracy, you take over the courts and the schools, so you have an uninformed citizenry. And what we're seeing is the fruits of that, the multi-year fruits of that. So we also have to pay attention to what we're gonna do about a Supreme Court that has been stacked with conservatives despite the fact that Donald yeah. Trump lost the popular vote by three million, uh, by three million in 2016. A lot, a lot of what you're describing, uh, Jason, seems to have taken place in Hungary, as you and I have discussed before. The stacking of the courts, the takeover of the media, the takeover of universities, um, this kind of illiberal democracy, what Orban rather generously calls his own system. Um, Hungary was not invited to participate in this global democracy summit today by the White House. Uh, he was a cherished visitor to the White House under Trump. What did you make of the decision not to invite Orban to this gathering? You, that would have been completely absurd to invite Orban. I mean, 90% of the media in Hungary is in some way, shape or form government controlled. Uh, you have uh, the courts dominated by Orban's uh, lackeys. Uh, you have uh, you, it, Hungary is a country where most of the citizens only speak Hungarian. So taking over the media really is powerful there. Uh, so a, a democracy is not just a majority votes. I mean, if, you know, the majority of Russians would vote for Putin, uh, it you know, when you have a lack of information, uh, when you have a lack of options, uh, when you have the relentless vilification of opponents and the manufacturing of fake opponents like critical race theory uh, to create fear uh, and uh, and and to fear and panic. Uh, you're not going to have a democratic system. I mean, North Koreans would vote for their leader again and again.
Hey everyone. So we know, we know it's the time of year when everyone is asking you for something. But the fact is that Best of the Left is also one of those entities that is really asking you for something because we really need your help. We're asking for a hundred new or upgraded members by the end of the year. But to be totally honest, we'll take as many as we can get. If we get a hundred, we're going to start asking for more. Because over the course of 2021, a distressing number of members had to downgrade or cancel their memberships because their financial situation changed. And we've been giving out a lot of financial hardship memberships. Times are tough and uncertain. We certainly get that and we are feeling it ourselves. Altogether, those cancellations, along with the slowest year in ad sales that I can remember, has really put the squeeze on us. So if you can become a member today, we could really use it. Just head to bestoftheleft.com slash support for all the ways to sign up. You can also find us directly on Patreon or right inside the Apple Podcasts app. When you become a member, you not only support the future of the show, but also get to hear the thoughtful and fun bonus episodes that Amanda, our assistant producers, Aaron and Dion, and myself have been putting out every other week just for members. How do we know that they're good? Here's what member Kim wrote to us a while back. The bonus shows feel like I'm getting to hang out with a group of friends who actually know something about the world. You all are so great. Thought-provoking, yet fun, relaxed, but it's obvious that a lot of planning went into it too. It's just the right balance of everything. So we're sorry to hear that Kim doesn't have more worldly friends, but we really appreciate her support and all the kind words. And personally, I think that the bonus shows have only been getting better since she said that a few months ago. Now, if you upgrade or sign up right now at the $6 per month level before the end of the year, you'll receive our exclusive custom best left digital wallpaper for your phone and tablet designed by us, not some underpaid freelancer. We did it. And this artwork is loved by people as discerning as Nick from California who actually kicked his own children off of his home screen in favor of our art. Got my best of the left art. You're in fierce competition for my lock screen because my kids are one and a half and five. So they're at peak cute. But you are definitely my new home screen background. You know what they say, aim for the moon and you'll land among the stars. Maybe the lock screen was never in the cards for us, but the home screen, it's still an honor. We'll take it. And now the last note on supporting the show, don't forget that we now have Best of Left gift memberships. So if you're already a member, or you just think someone else besides yourself would be more excited to be a member, consider giving the gift of progressive media this holiday season. It's always the right size, and one of the few gifts that actually has the power to improve the quality of conversations. A scented candle can't do that. Well, maybe. You know, it'll change the mood. Anyway, as always, thanks for your support. Now, here's the small print. If you sign up or upgrade through our site or on Patreon, look for the link to the artwork in your confirmation email. But if you sign up for your membership directly through Apple Podcasts, there won't be a link to the artwork in your email, but forward your receipt from Apple to j at bestofleft.com, and I'll get right back to you with it. To try to do this type of truth-telling you got to go to sometimes a dark place and you have to be willing to confront things other people are not willing to confront. And you got to be able to manage that energy. But this is mighty frustrating stuff. For me, it's not so much frustration. It's that 
like some people, including you, I've had a kind of moments where I see things very clearly that the way that things could unfold. I'm not saying I'm a psychic. It's like informed intuition. And that was the case when Trump first came in. I wrote this CNN op-ed and the title was Trump and Bannon's coup in the making, February 1st, 2017, where I just saw that they were going to have this takeover, the civil service, and that chaos was going to be the standard. And it scared me, and I had to go do yoga in the middle of writing this piece. So I've had moments like that where it's less frustration, it's just this, as you say, going to the dark place, intuitions of how things might go. And I just manage them where I find I've, over this period, I need to be in nature more. I need to take walks more, do exercise. I need to read about stuff that's not politics. It's managing the frustration. It's managing the feeling of perhaps being overwhelmed by all this knowledge and foresight that one has. It's funny you say that because when I don't stick to my daily routine of several walks, I sit and talk to animals. I see at least three movies a week. Playing a video game or reading a comic book before bed, I know it's not good before bed, but hey, it helps me. If I don't do those things, I'm out of sorts, and I don't have enough energy to proceed. So I was just looking back at what I wrote today, and I said I got a secret counsel, because we're both thinking about when do you leave? You know, when the hell do you get out? How do we negotiate that? That took a lot out of me to write. And then I've been looking at some of the other things I've written, and I don't realize it until after the fact. And writing about these things, if you don't keep balance, will drain you. Sometimes you have to step back by which I don't mean retreating, I mean the things that you just talked about, in order to be replenished and restored to continue the fight. So it's not a weakness to have whatever it means for you to have this playtime, because it's very easy to get burned out, because the task before us is very momentous. And we're also doing heavy lifting. It's hard to mobilize people to keep something that they don't know what it's like to lose. They take certain rights for granted, maybe, and who you are. I think African-Americans don't take voting rights for granted, and women don't perhaps take reproductive rights right now for granted. But the whole idea, some people still can't wrap their head around that America won't always be a democracy. And so you have to mobilize people to keep something they've always had that's hard. And so we're doing the heavy lifting of telling them just how bad it can get. Yeah, as you say, that's taxing. Is it just denial? Is it a failure of imagination? So much of this feels, because we don't talk enough about the politics of emotion, especially in these types of moments in this country. To me, not that we have gifted insight or vision, we're not psychics. This seems like a great anticlimax. Not to say there are not going to be twists and turns in the story, but is it that folks just can't confront what almost seems like path dependency at this point? Is it just some sort of denial, anger,age? How are you making sense of it from the historical context? But they keep looking for hope, trying to come up with some other story. Well, this is why I didn't use the word fascism, because people were looking for the Reichstag fire. Now, we kind of had it with January 6th. But they think it's going to look like it used to look, or it still does in North Korea or China, where it's going to be very quick and all the freedom will be shut down and you'll have a one-party state. And it doesn't work like that anymore. And so people don't know what to be alarmed at. It's so gradual. So that's one thing is how gradual it is. It's evolution, not revolution. And it's going on at the state level. And so one state after another 
is you know losing more rights, but there are still states in which there are going to be more freedoms. So people can rationalize that it's not so bad. This is just human nature and history. You know, German Jews they stayed in Nazi Germany because they thought, well, okay, this will be the last persecution. And then the same thing happened with Italian Jews after Mussolini did the laws against them. Oh, it's not going to be like Germany. So everybody finds a way to rationalize because, as you and I have written, is about going into exile. It's a, to realize the enormity of what's happening means that people might have to make decisions that change their life. Or if you don't want to be so dramatic, they might have to start doing something, sticking their neck out or sacrifice some of their income to give, to donate. And many people don't want to enter into that zone. And what about your members of the mainstream news media, political class? The idea that the language they're using is sort of the language of normal politics. And they're dealing with folk basically replacing normal politics, small LD, liberal democracy politics with violence, with fascism, authoritarianism, whatever language we want to use. And I listen to folks with their commentaries, their horse race journalism, their both sidesism. They're using the wrong language in the wrong framework. What are they seeing or not? Or is, again, just denial? Because I talk to these folks, I feel like I'm speaking Greek or Aramaic. And they keep wanting to believe that these frameworks apply. You don't know what you're dealing with. Or you don't want to know. Some of them may know. If you accept, you know, press critics like Jay Rosen and Eric Bowler, and he's constantly calling them out. It's really great. That's what he does. Almost every day he seems to be taking a talking point and showing how these old frameworks and old narratives or old coverage models. But I think that if you throw those away and you consider yourself now the opposition, Marty Baron said, we're not at war, we're at work. And that might have worked at the beginning, already under Trump, you know, journalists, the enemy of the people, and then there is no neutrality in for authoritarians. Seen this, and most recently during the Black Lives Matter protests, when journalists went to cover them, they were not considered neutral because authoritarians don't have neutral. It's you're with us, or you're against us. Dozens and dozens of them, or actually I think it was hundreds nationally, were assaulted, arrested, mistreated. People tried to knock their cameras out. That's the new normal. But in order to think that it means they have to completely change their way of writing and behaving, and I don't think they're prepared to do that. These are big corporate outlets, and even whether they're primarily print and digital, they're also TV, and they're not prepared to make that radical change because they'll also lose profit. So there's the behavioral part, there's the profit part, and I think some of them are shifting. They're using stronger language, but just think about you and I have been talking for years now how long it took people to start using the word authoritarian. And now people use it all the time, but it's slow, and it's perhaps too slow for our emergency. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Mehdi Hassan show, looking at the guide to illiberal democracy being laid out in Hungary. The Tom Hartman program explained the point-by-point plan for a coup after the 2020 election. Democracy Now! explained the details of Mark Meadows' criminal contempt vote by Congress. 
The Mehdi Hassan show explained the insufficiency of Biden and the Democrats to secure democracy at home. And the Chauncey DeVega show discussed the emotional toll of confronting fascism. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the broadcast doing an analysis on the unfounded accusations of election manipulation. They certainly had no such evidence when they were making these false claims after November 3rd in this PowerPoint document and in the lead up to January 6th. They had no evidence. Otherwise, they would have included it in this document. They were making it up out of whole cloth. They were using legitimate reports like mine of things that could happen, how elections could be stolen or interfered with, and just skip in the middle step. And just making the claims that it was stolen. And the politics of everything discussed the dynamics of the new breed of young right-wing Republicans who give insight into the future of conservatism in America. You will never feel like you will win if you have won everything and then see that people still don't think the right way. That seems like a flaw in their ideology. <laughs> well, it's a flaw, but it's a dangerous and symptomatic flaw, which makes them attracted to more kinds of authoritarianism. Because that's how they imagine you're able to change the way people think. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new, shiny, members-only podcast feed that you will receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Abdul, your listener, formerly from Inside the Beltway, now living in the uh, heart of the Confederacy, moved to South Carolina a couple of years ago, but I'm still listening. I wanted to jump in on the human nature argument. That is a typical conservative right-wing idea because they wrongly believe that there are these quote-unquote natural hierarchies inside human nature. Of course, they believe that they are also at the very top of whichever natural hierarchy they identify, whether it's hierarchies of race or gender or sexuality or whatever. And I think that you really hit the nail on the head with this nature versus culture question because, of course, conservatives, you know, if you scratch you don't have to scratch too deep in any on any conservative talking point to find the logical fallacy in it, right? Like, you mentioned the church and your response. Uh, think about human nature and sexuality. Think about what a big part of human nature, human sexuality is. It is the thing, it is the force that drives our species to procreate and, and to continue existing. And look at all the ways that the church, organized religion, government, the state has tried every which way twisting itself and society into not just to try to control certain aspects of human nature, you know, women's reproduction, you know, all, all of that. And anyway, I just wanted to add that in because these ideas are just based on the idea, this false notion that conservatives have that they somehow are plugged into some accurate, correct interpretation of the world, of the way the world works. And liberals were just like naive, silly geese chasing around pipe dreams. Anyway, keep doing what you're doing. Love the show. Still listening. Keep it up. Bye. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Now, to combine 
what is apparently our ongoing conversation about human nature and the event that I have coming up on Monday. Just to reiterate, I mentioned in the middle of the show that I'm doing an ask me anything, call in, talk sort of thing on a uh, it's a new social audio app. It's like social media, except audio. It's Monday, December 20th, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. Go to bestofleft.com slash wisdom to uh, get, find the app and find me and do all that stuff. But I bring it up now sort of in this context of, you know, having just heard from Abdul about human nature. And I've been talking about this for several shows now. I'm really interested to see how this experiment in social audio goes. And I don't just mean for me, I mean, more broadly, because I, I think for years and years and years, I mean, the internet in general, going all the way back to the New Yorker cartoon about how they don't know you're a dog on the internet and AOL chat rooms and, you know, whatever was going on, you know, when I was a kid, all the way up through the advent of social media, which is primarily text-based. And what all of these iterations of the internet have in common is that they strip away all but the you know, barest essence of our humanity in terms of how we communicate with one another. I mean, humans are deeply social creatures, but we vastly underestimate the degree to which our social nature depends on body language, the ability to see a person who is talking to you, the ability to hear a person, not just what they are saying, but the tone and inflection with which they say it, and all of those sorts of things. And so the internet is a you know pretty horrible and toxic place for the most part. I mean, it's, I guess it's got some upsides, but there's a lot of places where it's going terribly wrong. And I venture, not a very uh, unique guess, that a large aspect of that is the near absolute anonymity a person can have, or just the sort of perceived anonymity that the internet grants in combination with the entirely stripped down nature of communication from the deep, rich ways that people have communicated for thousands of years to purely text-based, rarely images are involved in a one-on-one -on -one exchange. People are trying to have a conversation via Facebook chat or a Twitter thread or something like that. And, you know, the best you get is maybe a, an icon picture of the person. And it is a recipe for toxic communication. So the experiment with social audio, I think, obviously is adding back the layers of humanity that have been lost in previous iterations of communication through the internet. But it's also a, a sort of a tougher sell, right? It's a steeper climb to get someone to dip into a social audio room and have a conversation than it is for them to see what someone has written via text and then respond via text. I mean, I don't have to explain how writing back and forth on the internet works to you, but it's a it's a harder sell. And I'm I'm deeply aware of this as a podcaster because you know I've been running this audio medium for 
15 years or so. And what we always run into is it's harder to get audio to be noticed on the internet or to go viral on the internet or anything like that than text. Text is just, it's very friendly to the internet. The internet runs on text. And so text is is something that is sort of universally accessible, searchable, indexable, all of those sorts of things. And audio is harder. So we're experimenting with social audio as a society, and it might make conversations better on the internet, but it's also harder to get people to have those conversations. So anyway, I don't, I don't have any sort of conclusion about this, but I am interested to see how this experiment goes, and I'm curious if anyone has tried social audio or any of the copycats, I mean, Clubhouse sort of, it wasn't the first, but I guess it made the biggest splash at first. And Twitter spaces and Facebook live audio rooms have come on to copycat the whole thing as they always do. And, but there are a bunch of others. So I'm really curious, has anyone been experimenting with social audio? If you have, was the experience sort of good, bad, or indifferent? I would love to hear because I, I have not experimented with it myself. I I mean, I'm not attracted to social media broadly. And I feel like if I have things to say, I'll just say it on this show and don't, don't need to do it on, on social audio. But now I am dipping my toe into the world of social audio and sort of experimenting with it myself as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear anyone's experiences or thoughts or concerns or, or anything else you may have. So as always, you can leave us a message at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. And the last thing I'll say before I go is uh, just a quick reminder that we are in our end of year membership drive. As happens basically every year, our, our memberships tend to trickle in the downward direction. Just, you know, people have changes in their opinion about whether they want to support the show. People have changes in their finances. That's the message we get most often. And if we are not uh, actively begging and pleading with people to sign up for membership, the trickle of inflow of members does not quite match the trickle of outflow of members. And so at the end of the year, we always have to run a big membership drive to try to sort of catch back up to a more secure footing. That is what we are in the middle of right now. And as a special thank you, we have our Best of Left artwork, which is rarely available. And if you either sign up as a new member or upgrade your membership from anything to anything else on, on any of our membership platforms, then you'll get instant access to our Best of Left art, which is perfect for a cell phone wallpaper or tablet, that sort of thing. That is all running through the end of the year, so get it while you can. And of course, thanks in advance for your support of the show. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. Of course, don't forget about giving gift memberships all at bestofleft.com support or through our Patreon 
if you want to go directly there or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player, including Spotify now, by the way. That, that's a new one. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.